So a little bit about me. Um, I'm an occupational therapist. I've been an occupational therapist for about eight years. I've been a traveler for five, so I got to work in almost every setting. I worked in a cancer center with students bless you, who have lymphedema and um, currently work in pediatrics. Um, I am from Sacramento, California, and I have um, a social media ministry that just gives out um, small devotionals to encourage medical professionals and those that are in the field. And I'm also part of a board um, called CPRP, Christian Physical Rehab Professionals. And we're down in the expo if you guys want to come and say hi. Um, it's for OTs, PTs, speech, and um, ortho, prosthetics, those, all, everybody. Um, I did want to mention there was a printing error, and I wasn't able to get the handout printed. So if you want to email me at that email, I can send you both the slides and the handout. It's just thechristianot at gmail.com. So I want to start out by telling you about a boy named Robert. So Robert um, grew up in a loving home. He didn't have any trauma or abuse. There were no red flags in any pediatric uh, checkups. He had um, two loving parents. He went to kindergarten and loved it. You know, walked and ran and jumped and swung and was able to catch up and do everything with his peers. When he went to first grade, he had a little bit more difficulty. It's a little bit more straining, a little bit more um, specific tasks. By the time that he had gotten to second grade, he got referred to OT. So he got referred to OT for poor handwriting skills, uh, the inability to focus, and he just wasn't keeping up. So in our OT assessment, we, um, we found out that he had sensory processing difficulties, which meant that he wasn't really accessing his environment. He would often hit chairs and tables and other peers. Um, he had a hard time with um, visual perceptual skills. So reading or copying something from the board was really hard. Knowing where he was on a piece of paper was really hard. Um, he had low tone. It was really hard for him to do fine motor tasks for long periods of time. And, and as he... As, um, we assessed he did have retained uh, reflexes. Um, and so that is a lot of what we're going to go over today. So in a nutshell, what we did to help him was we gave him felt safety. We worked on rhythmic movement exercises and primal reflex exercises. Um, and then consistency. So in order to rewire the brain, you have to do things over and over again. Um, and so his story took about six to eight months. And, and his mom was thrilled, and this was what she said. He's, he was much calmer. He wasn't as much of a messy eater. He was able to increase coordination of movement. He did so much better with organizational skills. So he was able to do better academically in the classroom. He knew his rights from his lefts. He grew in his visual um, perceptual skills. His handwriting became legible. In, in this time and increased in strength and coordination. He was able to play catch 
and, and catch a fly ball, which is huge for an eight-year-old kid. You know, you just want to blend in and play with your peers. So um, his, his confidence and pride, they skyrocketed. And his mom said, everything was difficult and hard, and now things are so much easier. Um, so the great thing is, is that we, you guys will get to walk away today with tools that will be able to help people just like Robert. Um, so we do have to define a couple uh, terms before we get started. Uh, developmental milestones. So developmental milestones are things that, that children should um, be able to do by a certain age. And it's not an exact date, but it's a range. Because um, everybody learns on a different uh, spectrum. And so uh, some examples of that is sitting with support is between four and six months. Or starting to crawl is around nine months. Walking is between 10 and 12 months. And so we kind of look to these things to say, hey, are they on the path that they should be? Primal reflexes. So primal reflexes are um, the body's way for us to survive. So the central nervous system, before we're even born, it tells us to do certain movements. So we have no thought related to the activity. There's just a stimuli, and the body says, do this. Um, as soon as the frontal lobe starts to kind of kick in and work, it, it'll take over, and you'll have purposeful movements. So you'll say, I want to grab that toy. I need to move my hand there. And so those reflexes will integrate. So retained reflexes and reflex integration. Um, retained reflexes are primal reflexes that haven't integrated. So for whatever reason, we still have them. There are people in this room that still have retained reflexes. They aren't crippling and they don't have to be um, life-changing. Our brain is an amazing organism. It, it will create neurotransmitters for us to be able to do functions and everyday tasks. But if we can retrain our brains and integrate our reflexes, we'll be able to do those tasks at such a better uh, efficiency and ability to um, build on those reflexes. So um, reflex integration is, in essence, when that primal reflex disappears. So we no longer have that and our body is able to have its own um, mind and control over things. Um, so these are the most common things that result in retained reflexes. So with learning and development, ADD and ADHD, sensory processing disorders, autism or Asperger's, learning disabilities, um, development and speech delay, auditory processing disorders, um, emotionally and physically, uh, anxiety and fear and phobias, behavior change, challenges, sleep disorders, depression, PTSD, Parkinson's. Um, so they're all related. So we're going to take a look at some common of retained reflexes. So sucking and rooting reflex. So this actually happens 14 weeks into uh, utero. So it's your body's way of survival, right? Because you, when you come out of the womb, you need to be able to eat. And so you need the muscles to be able to then be able to 
um, take in food. So um, what does this look like? A baby will turn their head and open their mouth to follow the and root in the direction of the stroking. This happens when the baby finds the breast of the bottle to start feeding. Um, and if it's not integrated, you'll have poor articulation, limited diet, difficulties grasping complex concepts or tasks, may suck finger or fingers or thumb, insufficient inner temperature. So th- these are the kids that will only eat uh, potatoes and chicken nuggets or um, they, they'll only have milk or they don't want water or, or those sort of things. Um, so how you test. The way to test for this is you start right below the nose and you go right to the mouth. And you can do that three times. And you look for the mouth to, um, or hand to twitch because that's the body's normal reaction with the primal reflex. If you do that to the baby, they will turn their head and start rooting. Um, and so if past a year they're still having this, then they may need some support in order to integrate it. Another one is the palmer grasp. So the palmer grasp also starts 16 weeks in utero. Um, and it's when you stick out your hand to the baby and they hold your hand, which is the best feeling ever. Um, and so this is also for survival because, um, one, we need to pick up things, but, two, we need to connect with our caregivers. Our, when, we, when we're young, we come out and we are um, dependent on others. And so we need to connect in order to um, get our needs met, uh, pick up when we cry or change our diapers or feed us. Um, so... Uh, what this what this looks like when it's not integrated is poor pencil grasps, anxiety, can't move fingers or thumbs independently, sensitive palms, tendency to drop things, and tendency to hoard. So in OT, this is particularly important because it's those kids that don't don't have a fine pincher grasp. They're not able to hold the pencil the way they need to. The way you test for this is, and you can all do it. Too, and you may find that you have one, is you take your hand and you kind of stroke from the top of your thenar preeminence to your wrist. And if So you're supposed to do it three times. And if your fingers twitch or your elbows twitch, you have a little bit of a retained reflex. So um, a lot of people will say they have one because they don't have very good handwriting. Um, or that they should have gone into a different field and been a doctor. Um, so different activities that we can do to help integrate a palmar reflex. And the palmar reflex is very much associated with the rooting, sucking reflex. Because babies, when they come out of the womb, those are the two um, ones for survival. And so um, the way that we can help them integrate it is by doing activities that, one, isolate our fingers, two, um, open and close, because then we're doing purposeful movements with our hands, and sensory. Sensory is a great one. We definitely want to um, help desensitize the palm so that when we touch it, we're not grasping. Um, And this is just a really good example.
So that's just a really nice activity. Um, so another really common one is the Moro reflex, which um, you may know as the startle reflex. And um, this is 28 weeks in utero, and it, um, it has two phases. So this is when a baby gets scared, and the first phase is they get really open, their arms open and their legs open, and then for survival, phase two is they want to protect their vital organs, so they um, adduct both. So um, this is the earliest development of fight, flight, or freeze. And um, if, they have, if it's not integrated, they'll have trouble with sensory processing, um, oversensitive to light, touch, smell, sound, tendency to overreact, cannot modulate, and cannot switch off. So this one is testing for the morrow. response because the baby didn't cry. Usually when you do it, they're going to cry. <laughs> so how to test. I actually want you guys to see if you still have this. So if you don't mind standing up. So you're going to put your arms out in front of you like you're pretending to be a zombie. And then you're going to turn your head to the right and to the left, to the right, to the left. Good. Did you guys notice anything? Could you tell if anything was asymmetrical or if it moved? Yeah. It's hard to tell on yourself, but... If your elbow bends, you still have a, um, a reflex. Um, and that can also be tested while um, on, in quadrupeds. So on all fours, if you have them turn their head and an elbow bends, it's still retained. Um, so for um, asymmetrical tonic neck reflex, um, this is another common one. Uh, it's for helping the baby to get out of the birth can canal. And um, if, if the baby turns their head to one side, the arm and leg on the same side will strengthen or straighten, while the arm and the leg on the opposite side will flex. Um, and so this is huge for right-left discrimination, has mixed dominant hands, um, symptoms of learning disabilities or um, letter number reversals, easily distracted, poor concentration, problems um, learning to ride the bike, problems swimming and crawling, and it typically integrates at six months. So here's a little one. I will say, so it is a little bit, this one's a little bit hard to test because Babies have spontaneous movements anyway, and you'll see that. But if you look, you can see one side is flexed and the other side is extended.
So um, an activity that you can do to help integrate this primal reflex is called the robot. And um, it's, it's pretty simple, and it, it's kind of the opposite of what that movement is. So you're helping your body be able to elicit those movements spontaneously. So you do do that 10 times on each side. Um, And that way it helps them be able to integrate that reflex. So also with this, babies do a lot of movements that are rhythmic. So the sucking is rhythmic. Um, They'll kind of bounce on um, the floor rhythmically. (laughs) They will. Um, The rhythmic movements help them to learn and access their environment. It also helps them to be able to make sense of the stimuli or the noise that's happening. And so when we do movements that are rhythmic, their body can make sense of them. Um, This can help with coordination, emotional stability, mental well-being, um, muscle tone, and uh, to integrate primal reflexes. So interestingly enough, um, when people... um, get Alzheimer's or dementia, primal reflexes will actually reappear. Um, And they don't quite know why, um, but you can do these exercises with them as well, and it helps just with brain function. Um, It can also be used with spinal cord injuries. I had a spinal cord injury who was a low um, lumbar, and he kind of was just sent home and said, you know, try to adapt and he refused to take that as um, a way for him to live. And so he unknowingly started doing um, primal reflex retraining. He would crawl on the ground. He would do these movements. He would do yoga. He would try to um, try to get as much movement as possible, and in doing so, he um, is able to not walk, but he's able to get around his environment. He's able to transfer. He's able to um, just get his needs met, which is huge because they had sent him home with support, meaning a person to do do the things for him. Um, and so he was learning, reteaching his body how to, um, to do these. Uh, another interesting thing is professional athletes, athletes um, they seek out reflex integration because – because we all have retained reflexes, um, and our brain is wired in a way that it wants to integrate them, 
we are able to do activities and movements better when our neurotransmitters are firing the way that, that our body was made to. And so professional athletes seek these out so that they can be at the top level performance that um, they can be. Um, and now I kind of want to switch uh, a little bit to a really important topic about trauma. So trauma is anything that happens that causes mental and emotional stress um, that we have difficult processing. It overwhelms the person's coping si system, and there's big T trauma and little t trauma. All of, our, all of the people that we work with will have experienced some sort of trauma, uh, especially with the pandemic, especially um, with uh, everything that's going on. So big T trauma are those things that... that um, that we think about for trauma. So it's the abuse, it's the neglect, it's um, all of those big things. And little t trauma, just as important, are the when something happened and we were so upset and we didn't know how we were going to ever you know, survive, mostly middle school. Um, <laughs> but um, those things are significant. Um, we all have a window of tolerance, every person. So our window of tolerance is the window in which we are able to function and be kind and talk with people. So some of our windows of tolerance, we're able to handle a lot, and we can function and be nice and kind. We can do what's asked, and we won't fly off the handle. And others, we have a very small window of tolerance. You know, we get hungry or hangry, and it's we are, we're gone. Um, so with this, we have two ways that people cope with being outside of their window of tolerance. They can either become hyper-aroused, which means they're going to have that anxiety. They're going to be really um, over, overreacting, unclear thoughts, um, emotionally distressed. Or we have people that kind of shut down. So that's like the depression or um, unable to work, lethargy, um, unmotivated. And when we come out of our window of tolerance, we go into fight, flight, or freeze. So our brains, um, like I've said before, they are wired for survival. So when, our, when we go out of our window of tolerance, our brain says something's not right, and it wants to protect us. And so um, we have kind of two main sections of, of brain. We have the upper brain, which is more logic, and we have the lower brain, which is more primal. And in between there is little baby gate that's the amygdala. And so when we go out of that window of tolerance, we the baby gate flies open and we no longer can think logically. We can no longer engage in what we're doing. Our brain has just said, I'm offline. I need to do whatever I need to do to survive. Um, and a lot of times... Our, our kiddos, it doesn't take much for them to get outside of their window of tolerance and move into fight, flight, or freeze. Uh, so fight is that aggression, that anger, revenge. Uh, flight is, I need to go. Whatever it is, I'm leaving. Um, and freeze is just, I can't move, I'm not sure what's going to happen, and um, you know, feeling of numbness. Another really important thing with trauma is that the body keeps the score. So even though we may not have um, mem memories of what happened, our body still knows. 
And so um, this is important um, with everybody that we work with, uh, but especially when we are helping them do these activities that are um, exercises that we may or may not need to help move their body to do the right coordination. And so, um, and that's the, that's the great thing about primal reflex reintegration is that it does work even in passive range of motion. So it will, if you move an arm in the right direction, it'll help train the brain. Okay, I'm okay, this is okay, I can do this. So one of the things, or some of the things that we can do to help um, our, our patients or our, our children um, is trauma-informed care. Um, so how do, we, how do we help those that we work with? Felt safety is huge. If, if they are already not feeling safe in, in the clinic or in, your, in the home or in the school, then they're not going to want to work with you, and, and they're already in fight, flight, or freeze. Uh, there's a saying, what is hurt in relationship is healed in relationship. And so every, every, the, there's an, um, sorry, there's a study that showed that if there's one loving adult that uh, believes in a student, that's all they need to succeed. Um, hope is such an important piece of, of what we give to those we work with. Um, and then just, so that connection and, and creating rapport. Um, another thing is to get on their level. So if we're working with kids, then we should be on the floor with them. Uh, it's, it is scary to have somebody hovering over you saying, hey, let's do this. Um, and so getting down on the floor helps them have that safety, like, okay, they want to play with me. And another great thing is entering their world and not asking them to enter ours. We always have an agenda for what what we want them to do, um, but how can we do that incorporating what they like or what they are doing? Um, giving choices is huge. Uh, shared power is amazing, and it, it doesn't take much. You can still have what you want them to do and ask them, "Do you? we're going to do some writing. Do you want to have the red pen or the blue pen? So then you're still doing your goal work, but they have a sense of power. Um, especially with our exercises. Do you want to go to the right first or do you want to go to the left? Um, and Or in what order do you want to do the exercises? Um, and always ask permission. So even when we're doing hand over hand with handwriting, we should always ask, can I, can I touch your hand to help you? Um, because when we're not, we're taking away their, their sense of um, their ability to do what they're doing. And so asking permission is huge. So again, we're wired for survival. And I think it's amazing that God designed our bodies for survival even in the womb. So he knit us together in the womb. And as you can see, even in development, he, um, he's helping us to um, survive in a world that is broken. Um, and... We're not here by accident. You're not at this conference by accident. You're not wherever you're working by accident. God could have placed you at any time in any space um, of history. And so there's a purpose for you here and now. And um, we get to partner with what God is already doing. God um, is already 
in that kid's life. God cares for that kid. God is in your clinic. We don't. We God is always with us, but God is already where we're going to. Um, and we get to be agents of hope and restoration. That is the great thing about God is He's always calling us to restoration. Um, and we get to be great advocates for our patients. We're the ones that are fighting for them. We're the ones that say, no, you have worth. You are loved. You are seen. You are known. And we get to be a, con- a conduit of his love. So we get to, even if we don't work in Christian settings, we can still show them and be a reflection of Jesus to them where we are. So John 13, 34 through 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So, I know that was a lot of information, and I kind of went a little bit fast. But does anybody have any questions? So, um, I'm a family medicine resident, so I encounter a fair number of kids, a lot of them coming in with signs or symptoms of ADHD, learning disability. Um, it's not really our current practice, or at least I haven't been trained to think, okay, from an occupational therapy standpoint, what reflexes could be evaluated that could be retrained to help with these symptoms. Would you recommend most of those kids should see an OT just to evaluate? Yeah, so um, because we work a lot on development, there, um, and the hard thing is, is that this training the primal reflexes while it's been around for a long time and there's a lot of evidence-based research it's not very well known um and and a lot of speech uh, providers do it a lot of ot's do it um the hard thing is is that retained reflexes isn't a diagnosable um isn't a diagnosis and so um you can't say hey you need to go to ot because you have retained reflexes unfortunately, but you can say, you can, like, ask about um, other things that they're having trouble with. So some of the things that um, they, that were on those lists, so poor handwriting, you know, sensory, uh, an OT should have kind of a foundation of, of uh, developmental movements. Do most OTs kind of have this? training in these retained reflexes, or would it be wise to seek out particular offices that are doing these kind of practices? So it's not well known, um, and so I would I would suggest looking for people who specifically do these. Yeah. Uh, we have six adopted kids, and some of them have some severe problems. Mm-hmm. And I like what you show. Some of our kids, when they were younger, are a little older now, had some of these treatments, but I did notice that my one son's high ADHD, but he's a phenomenal athlete. Mm. So he can do all those movements and learn all those things and gymnastics and diving and sports. Mm. But then some others that don't have much trauma and don't have some of these issues aren't. So how does that correlate? Because you, you would think it would affect them in that way as well. So that's the that's the thing about the brain is it's so individual. And so... Um, while some uh, some people who have ADHD, they actually do really well with movements because it takes them outside of their brain. 
They're not having to think logically. They're not having to focus. They're not having to do the specific task. But now they're like, okay, get the ball, go there. And they're like, and and a lot of kids with ADHD have sensory issues, and so they don't really know where they are in space. They don't like. Uh, they don't have the words to say, I'm busy inside and I can't focus. But through that activity, it gives their body that input it needs to be able to say, okay, I'm here, I'm in this space, I know where I'm at. So, so you recommend that they get more involved in sports because it does benefit them? Or? I do, yeah. I think it's really good. Plus teamwork and all of the things that come with being on it, um, playing sports. So, yeah. So it's the same reflexes. Um, so, like, if you were to do this, they would, their hand would grasp. Or if you were to do this, they would turn to this side. Um, or if you got them in quadruped and turned their head, their elbow would. It's the same. It's the same. Um, uh, sorry, intervention or uh, assessment. Um, so you would you would do these things, but you always want to make the activity more age appropriate. So you wouldn't necessarily have them. Um, maybe on the mat, on the floor, but you can play games and, and do things, especially because um, it depends on what's the quality of life and what do they want to do. So do they want to write their loved ones again? Then maybe in the Palmer reflexes, then work on you know those isolating that sensory, desensitizing. So it's kind of individually based. Yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. So we do, we want to give them steps so that they aren't triggered and go out of that window of tolerance. So part of that is making them feel safe and helping them to um, have choices and be able to say, hey, I'm starting to get out of my window of tolerance. Maybe I need to take a break and do some breathing. So we can give them tools to widen their window of tolerance. Or maybe they just need some water and some food and a nap, which is me all the time. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. So I have some colleagues who are very adverse to any kind of um, therapy. They've been very ill-advised. However, how would what other activities, such as athletics, would we be able to encourage them in order to get that same rhythmic, repetitive sort of activities to sort of deviate from these? So yoga is a great one. Um, and even... Um, you can you can not call it therapy, but do games that incorporate the same things, um, and like um, playing the drums is a great one, right? It's rhythmic, um, or doing a two-step, or dances, or, or those sort of things. So it incorporates the whole body, but also that rhythmic. Um, rhythmic movements have also been super significant for people with Parkinson's. It's just that neurological, trying to tell the brain, hey, um, setting that foundation that these are the movements that I want to do. Um, you mentioned the body keeps score. Um, are you saying that 
so that's more therapy, but we don't want to trigger them. And so we want to be aware that any time that we get in their space, it may be triggering. So it may put them in fight, flight, or freeze, and they won't be able, that amygdala goes off, and for 20 minutes they're not able to obtain to you. Um, and so and so the Body Keep the Score is actually a book, and it's very good. Um, it's not, because OTs don't necessarily have the tools to um, speak directly to trauma and how it influences, it's more, it was more of a way to say this can be really triggering and to kind of ask permission and do the things to help them not um, go out of their window of tolerance. Have you ever heard, I'm a physical therapist and have been doing a lot of reflex stuff, so a lot of what you say resonates. And there are two books that I might recommend to somebody that had a little kid. I don't know if you've heard of either of them and could comment, but A Moving Child is a Learning Child. It's not from a Christian worldview, um, but it does tell kids, like, if you're having problems with handwriting, go put your kids on a monkey bar and get them you know, get some of their, it just tells you very practical ways to deal with, and it gives you the pictures. And then there's a program called the Brain Gym, mm-hmm. which has a lot of different specific exercises. So when you see your kid is doing X, then you have them do Y. So if you're not a PT, it kind of walks you, or an OT, kind of walks you through, what does that look like? What is a good response to that? What is an alternative, just another escape route? <laughs> Yeah. The Brain Gym is great. Yeah, I've done the Brain Gym. I haven't heard of the book. Um, a moving child is a learning child. A moving child is a learning child. Nice. Yeah, I do have just some some um, resources that if you want them, um, just send me an email and I can send you these slides. But um, there's a really good course called Move, Play, Thrive. Um, and then... YouTube is amazing. It's got so many resources and activities and things. And so um, if you just even type in primal reflexes or primal reflex um, exercises, there's a whole bunch of things. Um, Particularly, there's a YouTube channel called um, Pyramid of Potential. Uh, It's really good. So. So um, I'm not sure about comparison, but I do know that, that there is evidence-based research that says if you complete these movements in passive range of motion, they do also help reintegrate the brain to help with these things. Now, uh, primal reflex integration isn't going to help if there's something like physically um, wrong with the brain. Um, because what it does is it rewires the neurotransmitters. Um, it kind of sets that foundation of movement. So, does that answer your question? Yeah, I was just thinking like the elderly patients too, if they're like, gaining those reflexes back at a point, is it beneficial just to do passive range motion with them to integrate? Right. Well, and the cool thing is, is that the older gen- population, um, that they've already have motor memory. And so you, you can kind of tie into that as well. And um, 
what I've found, music is actually a different part of the brain than movement. And so if you can incorporate both movement, rhythmic, and the reflexes, it really helps specifically the geriatric population. Sorry, can you say your question one more time? Yeah. I think you said it, like, on your first slide. You were just describing, like, what each thing was. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure if you could just say it again or even go back to the first slide of, like, what happens in your brain, even, like, as a child, that integrates the primal reflexes. Gotcha. Yeah, so um, the primal reflexes start with the central nervous system. And so it's an automatic movement. It's not thought-based. But once we start to have purposeful movement, our frontal lobe starts to take over. We can think, okay, I want that toy. I'm going to grab it. Instead of, um, you know, turn my, I don't need to turn my head so my arm's going to extend. Um, so it's kind of that purposeful movement that integrates um, the primal reflexes. generation resents you questioning them to retain or to, or to uh, think about what they, they know to apply to a particular situation. Mm -hmm. uh, they feel uh, hostility. They feel like you are being, uh, you're attacking them rather than trying to help them think about what they know and apply it to patient care. Mm -hmm. Uh, would the uh, asking them, telling them what you're trying to do, and asking them if this is okay, if, would that help with breaking that barrier between them feeling like they're being attacked rather than helping them learn what they need to do, applying what they know to a clinical situation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you can even put it back on them. You can say, hey, I really want to help you. What do you need for me to be able, for you to be able to understand what's happening? That way, indirectly, they're asking you for help. But you have said, hey, I've come to help. Um, and so it helps kind of take away that you're doing this wrong um, kind of mentality. So I think that would be great, Gaff. You said, hey, I really want to help you. Um, this is what I'm seeing, or, hey, I want to help you. What? How do you learn best? Or is there something I can? Is there something difficult that you want me to kind of reiterate? So, yeah, I think that would be great. All right. Any more questions? Awesome. Well, thank you guys for coming. Um, so they did say... They